0: Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Before we get going, you can sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style features, breaking news, opinion pieces, and on-location stories for every U.S. Men's World Cup qualifier. That all costs money, but I hope you want quality and want to value it So, consider subscribing. That's grantwall.com to get my posts in your email inbox the second they go out. This is an MLS playoffs focused episode. Chris Whittingham and I will have plenty of discussion in segment two. But first off, I had a fascinating interview with Pablo Mastroani, the interim head coach of Real Salt Lake, which has gone on an incredible run to the MLS Final Four. Here's that interview. Our guest now is the interim head coach of MLS's best playoff story in years. Pablo Mastroani has Real Salt Lake one step from the MLS Cup final ahead of its game at Portland on Saturday at 6.30 p.m. Eastern on FS1 and Fox Deportes. Pablo, it's great to see you. Congratulations on everything you've been doing.
1: Thanks, Grant. I'm really enjoying it. It's been a lot of fun and uh, hoping that uh, we can continue on.
0: I mean, there's so much that makes your team a great story. You've had all the uncertainty of not having a team owner. You've had head coach Freddie Juarez leave midseason for an assistance job in Seattle, a team you ended up eliminating in the playoffs. You needed a last-second goal in the regular season finale just to get into the playoffs and now after advancing past Seattle and Kansas City on the road, you've got Portland being the last barrier to reaching the MLS Cup final. What has stood out the most to you about this remarkable run that you've had?
1: Really, I think it's been the players, the, the culture. Um, we've really uh, doubled down on being a great group, uh, working hard for each other, um, almost a, a brotherhood, and, and believing in ourselves when very few people did. Um, and that's kind of been our war cry from the beginning. We've 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 understood that uh, you know at times uh, things never went our didn't go our way. Yet we found ways through our resiliency to to overcome and persevere. And I think if you do that enough, um, that just becomes second nature. You're not thinking about are we still in this game? You know you're in this game because you've done it many times before. So it's been a a fantastic vibe within the group that I think has really propelled us to this point.
0: So looking ahead to Portland this weekend, are you planning on having Albert Rusnak available and how are you planning to approach this game potentially more like you did against Kansas city or more like against Seattle?
1: Well, I think, you know, Albert uh, will get tested this morning um, and he should be available with us tomorrow. And I think a lot of that has to do with where he's at from a physical perspective. Obviously this Covid affects people in different ways, um, but uh, you know he's been he's been doing a little bit of work at home, and uh, we'll see where he's at. Um, and again, if he's if he's in a good way, Albert's been an integral part of this group, both on and off the field, and uh, his leadership and his play will will definitely be needed um, if he's available to beat a very good Portland team. And so, um, and and that has a lot to do with the way I think we'll kind of shape up for this game. Um, but you know, I, I think. It, you know, against Seattle, we, we didn't necessarily sit out to bunker in. I, I think their, their ability to build momentum through the course of the game um, outpowered our ability to beat them in transition and back them up. Uh, whereas in Kansas City, uh, I, I think we did a really good job of, of imposing ourselves on the game and really minimizing their transition moments to keep them kind of pinned in and dictate the game. So, you know, Portland, we know we've seen it three times now where we've been uh just beat on on the counter and we, we we played some expansive stuff it was fun to watch and and again we won the we won the stats game against them but we lost the score line against them every time so for us it's going to be uh a, a, again i expect another organized discipline performance um and and you know we'll start tomorrow on looking how we want to break them down and and figure out uh, our best opportunities with the players available to, uh, to find a way to hopefully get a great result.
0: Is winning the stats game overrated? I mean, you happened against against Seattle to have an all timer, right? Whereas, you know, zero shots on goal, you advance. Um, Is it overrated? Uh,
1: Again, what I like to say is um, the real, for me, what matters the most are the moments in real time during the game. And so what I, talk, what I talk about after performances, win or loss, were the critical moments. Um, and they, they, they appear all the time throughout the course of the game. They're, 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 they're moments. So they're, they're essentially, uh, I mean, depending on how you want to break it down, there's, there's, there's a ton of them. And, and, and really is how can these moments affect momentum to put us in a great position to either score a goal or deny a goal? And and so that's what I talk about is in real time is is finding solutions and solving problems that are gonna after the fact you have the stats that basically portray um, what the overall game look like. But those stats can't help you win or lose a game. They they just tell the story. What helps you win and lose games are the moments that you overcome and and do well with. And and because and, again, everything's in real time. So um so are they overrated uh it depends on if you think that those stats would have helped you win a game but really what helps you win a game is you know blocking that cross or putting your body in front of that shot or denying central penetration or crossing that ball to the you know to the top of the 18 instead of across the six like those are Those are what we talk about because those are the moments that you can affect. And at the end of the day, those are the ones that dictate the scoreline.
0: So what was your very first reaction, if we go back in time a little bit, to when you learned that Freddie Juarez was leaving the team mid-season for Seattle?
1: I I was shocked, to be fair. Um, We were in a good way. Uh, We were, you know, I think seventh or eighth in in the West. And uh, we, uh, Freddie, you know, was was I felt like what was doing a fantastic job with the group, and we'd built a a really good uh, group of players that believed in the in the project and believed in the direction. and then when I found out he, he was leaving, all of a sudden i I started thinking about man, I might have to get on the sidelines again and and the reason why I came was to be an assistant coach to backfill the void that was there for me going from playing to to managing. And so i was I couldn't have been happier in my role. And so when, when he told me it was just, my head started just spinning. Um, and then quickly realizing that I got, I got to quit feeling sorry for myself because life doesn't happen as you want it, as you want it to, it happened. You you have to react the right way. So, um, quickly started putting on my, my managing cap on again and and really reaching back on my experiences in Colorado and, and thinking about. The, the the things that uh, I felt I did well, and, and those things that uh, I felt I didn't do so well, uh, because of a lack of experience, and really drawing on that experience to to kind of lead me forward and and help lead this group.
0: It's really interesting that you say that to me because it's this old adage that every assistant coach wants to be a head coach, but what you're saying to me here appears to be something different. That when you came to Salt Lake. You didn't have the ambition to become a head coach again as quickly as possible. Is that accurate?
1: That's accurate. No, I think, I think in order to be uh, you know, a great coach, a great manager, I, I think you have to understand what the roles and responsibilities of an assistant coach is and, and how you feel as an assistant coach, given the different coaches you work under. Um, because again, you know, sometimes, you know, if, if I just go on what I knew as a manager, that's, that's all I know. I've never had the experience of being an assistant and feeling what that feels like to maybe have too much responsibility, not enough responsibility, areas of the game that I'm like, man, I'm deficient in this area. Um, how can I reach these players? Um, because the manager's busy with media and everything else he's got, how can I take this individual player and really help him work on an aspect of his game that can help the group? And And so there's so many positives of being an assistant coach. And, um, I think the allure is the limelight. Um, but in my case, you know, going from playing to coaching, I was learning on the fly and that limelight is scary. Um, when things aren't going your way and you don't have enough experience. Um, and so, um, I was, like I said, I was, I was really enjoying my role here. And, uh, I was, I was shocked when, when Freddie told me he was leaving.
0: It's interesting because, um, You know, you've been a head coach with Colorado. You took a Colorado team to the Final Four, the MLS playoffs, where you are right now with Salt Lake. I remember when Jesse Marsh had his first head coaching experience, uh, which was with Montreal in MLS, and it was up and down. There were some good moments, some not great moments. He left after a year, and he took some time off from coaching, for a little while after that. And he even took his family on an around the world trip, which was really interesting, I thought. And then he restarted his coaching career and you know now he's coaching at Leipzig in Germany. Like, what did you do? Cause you, didn't you have a couple of years off from coaching after your Colorado experience? Like what were you doing during that time?
1: Yeah, so great question. I was, I, I spent about a year and a half, well, I spent the first six months of, Blaming everyone at Colorado for for my dismissal. Um, and then I took the next six months of owning one hundred percent of my dismissal in Colorado and accepting the fact that unfortunately, experience hurts. And this is a part of your development as a coach. And when you accept one hundred percent, at that moment, you can start to affect change. And so then at that point, I started thinking about everything from, you know my management style to my, you know, to the way I expressed my tactics to uh, the, the culture of the group and everything in between. And I literally spent a year filling out journals, looking at watching games, uh, studying games on TV. Um, and just went all in on my own studies of the game and, and, and myself and, and how, and all different ways I could get better as a coach. And so I did that my biggest problem was my family was in Colorado. My kids were in high, getting in high school age. And I realized that if I want to continue coaching, I'm going to have to leave the house. And so I spent another six months trying to figure out how I could coach a professional team in Colorado or, or without leaving Colorado. And, and the truth is that they're, 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 there's, there's no option. So, so then I knew that being in the house all day wasn't good for me at this point. And, uh, I have a buddy that, uh, owns a water company and he says, Pablo, listen, you've been telling me like you're free. Would you like to come and help me have a project that's going to take about three and a half weeks? So I said, yeah, I need to get work I need to get out of the house. I need to start feeling alive again. I'm, let's, let's do it. So I showed up at the shop and got the the rubber boots and the truck. And, uh, I had no idea what I was in for. Um, but we were literally laying a thousand feet of water main, a uh, water main. Wow. And so, and so... Jumped into this trench, and they threw me a spade, and I was basically making sure that we weren't cutting into any electric, any gas, or any other water lines hooked up to the houses. And I was working from nine to five, and I was coming home every day just exhausted and and tired. And he was paying me; he's like, and I'm going to pay you really well. He's paying me like eighteen bucks an hour. And I remember after like week three, I had this epiphany. My brother calls me; he's like, and he always called me when I was going into work with a work truck, and he said, uh, he said, Pablo, he said, uh, are you excited about work today? And I said, no, I, I go, I just, I just thought of something. I said, uh, I'm, I'm, str- I'm like in pain going home every day and I'm, I'm literally working in these trenches and I'm getting paid commiserate to my level of experience in this profession. I said, if I want to get back to work, I need, I'm considered a professional in this other field And it was in that moment that I decided to get back into coaching. Um, And literally a week later, I get a call from MLS and they want me to come into the studios to help with some playoff stuff. And then a week after that, Tab called me and asked me if I wanted to join him in Houston.
0: Wow. Thank you for sharing (laughs) that. That's incredible. Um, And I think there's some cool life lessons there um, for people. And you became an assistant. Uh, in Houston, uh, you came to Salt Lake, which is an interesting one because you, you were so associated as a player and then as a coach with the Colorado Rapids, and that 's the arch rival of Real Salt Lake. Did you have to win it, win over any skeptical fans at Salt Lake who are like, "We used to hate this guy
1: um, I think initially there were some reservations on the uh, on the fans part um, but I, I think, you, you know, when you meet people and you get to know them, you know, like my loyalty is to Salt Lake because they believe in me and they brought me here. Right. And so like, I'm going to do everything and take the wealth of experience I gained throughout my whole career and, and, and apply it here and be the best, um, you know, servant of the club that I can possibly be. And, and, and now just showing that, that I'm with you guys, like, this is how pro sports work. Um and 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 so I think initially maybe I maybe it was me too that was a little bit nervous because I remember coming to these these games out here and it was it was nuts. It was mayhem um from the kickoff to the end of the game, and then after the game, there's there's some situations as well. Um so I think it was more my own insecurities about coming here than the fans, but uh they 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 received me pretty well.
0: Interesting. Um and in- you're the interim coach you've you've taken Salt Lake to the Western Conference final. You've got a chance to win this league at this point. Do you feel you've done enough to be the head coach of this team next season and take the interim tag off?
1: great I don't think that's that's for me to say uh, you know i i and and what i what I said to Elliot when we met when Freddie left, you know he asked if I wanted to be interviewed for the job, and I said, well. To be honest, in this moment, um, my biggest concern is to make sure that I organize and galvanize this group in a way to continue putting us in a spot to compete for the playoffs. And I said, you know, if you're going to get a real-time look at the culture I'm trying to build, the spirit of the group, the style of play, if you like all that and we get great results, you know, I'd love to interview for the job. And so... Uh, that's, that's the, you know, I think this whole thing wasn't about me. It's not about my strive to be a head coach. It's about doing my job, which is now leading this group and doing the best job I can. And if, and if it lands me in this position, uh, you know, I'm grateful for it. And if not such as life, you keep going on, but the experiences that I've gained in the last four months, I wouldn't trade for any position.
0: You've had some wonderful quotes over the years, Talking about soccer at times, even in mystical and existential terms, do you still view the sport and even the planet in that way?
1: I do I think I mean the fact that I, the, the fact that I'm s- sitting here talking to you as the interim head coach of Salt Lake um, when two years ago I'm sitting in a trench, um, <laughs> getting covered with mud. I, I mean, I think it is a, a mystical place. And I think there's a lot of things that happen in our lives that have no explanation. And I think when you surrender to to the greater forces that be, um, it's it's it puts you on a ride that you couldn't ever believe was possible if you tried to control everything. And so my experience on this planet is has been remarkable. and and although I had visions of playing soccer playing in a World cup, um, my ability to just let things happen as they as they do, whilst giving the best effort I can, has led me to some some, some um, am- amazing places. I've met amazing people um, and built some amazing relationships because of that.
0: It is pretty incredible now that you and I are both older. I can remember the first time I covered you at the 2002 World Cup. I think it was when. You surprised everyone by starting the opening game for the US against Portugal <laughs> and the US wins the freaking game. And <laughs> and so when you talk about life experiences like that, soccer's taken you to some pretty incredible places, it seems like.
1: It, it has. It has. And even even how I got on that team, Grant, I, I remember uh a qu- quick story. I, I was I was invited to go play uh My second national team game with the U.S. in Korea, December of 2001. And I was playing right back because Bruce saw me as a right back. And I got torched by this left winger who was playing in in Holland at the time. I don't remember his name, but he just he stole my lunch and ate (laughs) and ate it right in front of me. Like it was it was terrible. And Bruce pulls me out in the 60th minute and um, writes me a note um, and gives it to me as, as we're walking off the plane. And I still have this note and it's a great motivational note for me, um, as far as life is concerned. And he says, listen, Pablo, he said, thank you for the effort. Obviously, uh, you're still a little bit inexperienced and there's, um, there's a lot of things that you need to work on, but 2006 is around the corner. Um, (laughs) and I think you could be a great teammate for 2006. And so I was devastated, but I went home and I kept working. I get a call January like third and he, and he brings me and he says, uh, how are you fit? And I said, yes. He said, "Burhalter just went out with a, a knee injury. Um, can you, can you join the camp for gold cup? And I said, sure. He goes, but by the way, you're playing center back. And I said, fantastic. So I went into camp Had a great camp. Uh, I think we lose the first game or maybe tie against South Korea. And he goes, Pablo, you're going to go at center back for the next game. We end up shutting every team out, winning the gold cup, and then he invites me to another friendly, and then I get invited to another friendly, and now it's decision for, for the World Cup squad. And I get a call from Bruce, and he says, I'm, I'm bringing you to Korea. And so you can imagine this universe thing, how it all happens, how people get injured. And, 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 I, and I said, great. And he goes, you know why I'm bringing you? And I said, yeah, I've been playing great as of late. He says, no. He says, you're a great teammate you work your tail off and you help make the guys in front of you better. And that's what I expect from you in Korea.
0: Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It, it's it, that world cup itself for the U S just the high watermark still, uh, for modern U S men's soccer, getting to the quarterfinals, uh, so many great moments from that. and It's kind of cool to see you and Bruce still alive, coaching playoff teams, at least as of now, we're recording this on Tuesday. They, uh, Bruce has a game on Tuesday night, but um, yeah. um, just a, a couple more real quick ones here. One of them is you have a 20-year-old goalkeeper, David Ochoa, who has become sort of MLS's new favorite villain that opposing teams love to hate, seems to be embracing it. I personally think MLS needs more villains. It's fun to follow. What's your sense of some of the things Ochoa has said publicly in the last few weeks?
1: To be fair, I, I, I haven't read a lot of them um i i think that david operates from his best self when he's playing from playing the villain um and he plays with confidence and in doing so brings a lot of confidence to the back line and the guys in front of him you know and so for for, for me um again i think players have to express themselves um in a way that brings out the best and he's found a role that uh has not only uh been been talked about throughout the league but that has really inspired his own play and inspired the guys in front of him
0: lastly people are still mispronouncing your last name pablo and we're about two and a half decades into this uh with your career could you just say your full name for everyone so they understand (laughs) what it is
1: yeah it's pablo (laughs) It's
0: it's just like it looks y'all (laughs) <laughs> especially if you are a spanish speaker but you really don't need to be a spanish speaker uh pablo congratulations on everything you're doing your team plays against the portland timbers in the western conference final this saturday 6 30 p.m eastern on fs1 and fox deportes great to see you thanks for coming on the show
1: thanks for having me Greg. great catching
0: all right let's bring in chris
2: whittingham how are you man Doing well. Uh, that Pablo Mestre interview was ridiculous. And, and what a story we all Lake are. I think they have to be the neutrals' favorite uh, going forward in, the, in this MLS Cup playoffs. But we had New England going out after three weeks off last night. There's a lot to talk about.
0: Yeah, there really is. So let's start with that. Uh, on Tuesday night, New York City upset the New England Revolution, which had set a league points record for the regular season. Now the MLS playoffs are totally wide open with City meeting Philadelphia in one semi, Portland hosting Salt Lake in the other. What are your thoughts on City's upset of the Revs?
2: Well, I think it was another one kind of similar to the game you just talked about with Pablo Mastroeni, that Rail Salt Lake Sporting Kansas City game, where I thought NYCFC were probably the better team. They went away to the MLS points record holder and outplayed them for large portions. And then, you know, it was 1-1, goes to extra time. New York City get the goal first in in extra time. And then you have New England responding just before the break after Tati Castellanos gets a red card, which going forward, that really hurts New York City's chances heading into the conference final against Philadelphia. Tati Castellanos is a golden boot winner. He scores the goal after, you know, spurning a few other chances. And then New England go out and... I'm, I'm left a little frustrated. Uh, now, I, I don't think that on the day New England deserved to go through, but I'm left a little frustrated at New England and Colorado both going out in their first playoff match in the single elimination format. They both had incredible seasons. They both built incredibly well. They're tribute to good MLS team building. They're good teams, and they're out at the first hurdle, and I think the first round bye has a huge part to do with it, and I, I'm frustrated that New England did not look like themselves for most of that 90 minutes, for most of the 120 minutes in the game.
0: I'm with you on that. You know, I have a view on what happened in this particular game, and then I have an overall view about what you're saying. And I do think it's important. I agree with you. I think City deserved to advance, or at least it wasn't that they didn't deserve to advance. You know, when you look at some of the the measures, 57% possession for City in this game, shots and shots on goal, almost even between the two teams. New England in expected goals, 1.14, 0.89 for City. Not a huge difference there. So you don't come away from this feeling like City didn't deserve to advance. I feel like they, they did what they needed to do. It went to penalties. They won on penalties, made one more than New England, or I guess two more in the end. Um, and that's all good from a one-game perspective perspective and give them credit for getting, you know, the early goal, they traded goals in the first 10 minutes. um, And it's not like city shut up shop or anything in this game, but in the overall picture, I do think the MLS playoff format is worth discussing. And it seems like we've done this every year for a decade now or more. And we're three years into this single elimination format which does value the regular season somewhat in that the, the higher seed gets the home game. And if you do finish first, supposedly that's an advantage because you get a buy in the first round of the playoffs. But as we've seen now, because of the international break, because you then get a buy, you, if you're a top-seeded team, you can go three weeks without playing and players need to be playing, and you can't simulate games, I I don't care what you say, with sort of simulated games or playing against each other. And Brian Strauss has the the receipts, the the evidence here. Brian, my former Sports Illustrated colleague, uh, put out in his Twitter, in the three years of this new single elimination format, the regular season conference winners – are 0 for 6 now in advancing to the MLS Cup Final. If you take it all the way back to 2010, the regular season conference winners are 2 for 24 advancing to the MLS Cup Final. And I want to be clear here, I am fine with playoffs. I, I don't feel like MLS needs to, you know, just have the regular season winner be the champion. This is an American League. I'm okay with playoffs. But I've been banging this drum for so long now of I want lower seeds, teams that aren't as good over the 34-game regular season, I want them to have a higher hill to climb when it comes to upsetting top seeds, higher seeds. I want the regular season to matter more. I come away from this feeling like Why should I spend so much time watching the MLS regular season of 34 games played by 27 teams? That's a ton of games. Why should I devote that much of my time to following this if it's such a crapshoot and maybe not even a crapshoot. I feel like being the top seed might even be a disadvantage now the way things are set up. And as a soccer person, I want, I want the regular season to matter more. So I want there to be a higher hill to climb. I still think the single elimination playoff format is an upgrade over what it used to be, but I think you could have a much bigger upgrade still. Make it a higher hill to climb for the lower seeds. Go to a group stage. Get eight playoff teams. Have the top seed host all three games of the group stage. The four seed in that group has to go on the road in all three. And then the top two teams... From the group, advanced to the semis and then the final. I'd feel a lot better about that hill being a lot higher to climb for the lower seeds.
2: I agree, and I think in general, um, the the playoffs have certainly been entertaining. Like they are a fun watch, and, and when you say like the the format is an upgrade, it's an upgrade only in the momentum of entertainment value, right? Because right. the the, the two legged ties are, I think, the correct way to do it, and that's how they do it in Mexico. And I actually think they have a really cool thing where, in Mexico, one of the tiebreakers is where you finished in the regular season. So there are two-legged aggregate ties that end 1-1, and the winner is not the the, the team that finished better on away goals, it's the team that finished better in in the regular season. And so I, I do think that, in general the single elimination format just welcomes this. It welcomes, was it, two versus four in one conference and four versus seven in the other. And like you said, it just doesn't justify the regular season. I don't know what the fix is to complement both the entertainment value of what the playoffs are meant to be and that sporting merit, ones and two seeds. But I know the one thing that I think has to be parted with is the bye week because I, right. think, I think that is going too far in Americanizing this sport. Because in the NFL, in the NBA, in the NHL, although I mean, I guess the NFL is really the only major, I mean, baseball because of the wild card game, like, the NFL is really the only league that really prioritizes the bye week, and that's because it's, such, it's so physically taxing that getting a, a week's extra rest is, your body is fresher. Whereas in this sport, it's very much a momentum sport. It's playing every week. It's playing regularly. It's rhythm. I mean, even some guys that don't play in the midweek games, they don't feel the same going forward. You like to play. And play and play. It's a game of you want to play games. And so the idea that New England went three weeks and two days without playing, and the other factor in that is that the Patriots are home on Sunday. And so what might have been a Sunday conference final gets pushed back to Tuesday so they can, you know, have the Patriots game and then the Revs game. It's just time and time and time. I think it's nearly impossible to be up in the same way that NYCFC were having played a difficult playoff game themselves and having beaten Atlanta and been up for this level from the opening whistle. And you saw when the NYCFC scored three minutes into the game. Yeah,
0: I'm with you on almost all of that. I'll tell you what I'm not with you on. But I would prefer the lower-seeded team have to actually win the game. And so if it's a tie game, don't go to penalties. Don't go to extra time. Ooh, I like that. Like, the higher-seeded team advances. And everyone knows that heading into the game. That would be pretty
2: unsatisfying as a viewing experience, though. A playoff game that just, a single elimination playoff game that ends in a draw, and hey, higher seed goes through. I guess the home fans would be happy.
0: Whatever makes the MLS regular season matter, because, matter more, because right now, I'll tell you this, why should I watch the MLS regular season? I mean, seriously. Like, it's, I understand that, like, I like having a domestic league and all that stuff, but, like from a competition standpoint. But I'd
2: also say I like, it's, why, so. why, why would you watch the Liga Mekis regular season? That 12, 12 of 18 teams make the playoffs and then the first right. four teams get a bye. I mean, I, I don't think that like, you know, Chivas America still means a lot, right? Like, I don't think Liga Mekis has suffered for their playoff format in terms of interest. Certainly in this country, there's still a huge amount of interest. Um, yeah, and, and I don't know necessarily that the answer is, well, the best teams just have to win, right? Because on top of you know the you know yes New England in terms of points is miles better than every other team they're also operating within the same system in, in kind of an in in a normalized world like it's not that big of a difference between these two teams like over the course of the year I actually think and NYCFC's underlying numbers were better than New England's and so it's still a salary cap league and the difference between every team is not really that significant it's just New England won a bunch of one goal games this year and finished with 20 more points so I don't know if necessarily it throws out the meaning of all the games, but I understand why you'd feel that way when it's two versus four and four versus seven in the conference finals.
0: Yeah. The, the other thing too is th- that I slightly disagree with you on, I think is I don't want to go back to two legged mm-hmm. playoff ties in MLS. I, I felt like that was not a great system. Um,
2: and for the entertainment of, value or because you don't feel like better teams won?
0: Um, I feel like, again, the lower-seeded teams were given not a high enough hill to climb to, to advance, and it made the regular season not very meaningful. Um, I also thought the first games often were pretty dreadful. Um, That's The true. first 90 minutes That's true. of those. So, um, yeah, we'll see if MLS ever makes another change again. I doubt they will, but I think the Brian Strauss numbers are pretty damning for number one seeds, teams that were the best in the regular season over 34 games. Not only do I think they don't get an advantage, I think they have a disadvantage now.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, that, that that's... I mean, I, I guess, I mean, playing at home should be a bigger advantage than it's proven to be, but I think the the bye week, I think, might might offset and might even negate that. So... I, I I think the bye week is one that has to be reconsidered. And I do think that the the MLS playoff format will continue to change because they keep adding more teams. And so when they get to thirty, are they gonna stick with seven teams in each conference? Maybe they move to eight teams in each conference to make it I'm sure uh, you know, will. like like purely sure like the NBA format. Um and then you're you know straight up single, and that certainly solves your bye week problem. Um but I, I don't know. I feel like there's always room to tinker with the format.
0: There is one other thing I wanna talk about in this episode, and that's outside the U.S., and that's the Ballon d'Or, which my French-speaking wife would probably say I'm mispronouncing horribly. Ballon, Ballon d'or. Um, <laughs> said with some... What was that weird accent I just
2: affected? Um, you sounded like a, like an angry patron in a French restaurant <laughs> sending food back.
0: Ballon d'or. So I can't get angst-ridden about this. I know so many people were angry on Twitter about Lionel Messi winning his seventh... Uh, award. Uh, I do want to say, first off, the most dominant feeling I had was actual happiness that Barcelona's Alexia Pateas won the Women's Award hmm. because I think she totally deserves it. I think Barcelona's women's team is one of the coolest things in sports, much less soccer over the last year, just how they play. Um, it's amazing to watch. It's a lot more what you know, you're... More able to watch it now, thanks to places like Ada Football. Um, and they represent what Barcelona as a club uh, has always sort of intended, and that their men's team had maybe a decade ago. And they play just great, great soccer right now. I can't wait to see how Barcelona does uh, potentially in Champions League against Lyon this season. I think uh, it's going to be a big challenge for Lyon. Um, in terms of the men's situation, Messi wins the award. If you look at purely stats, Lewandowski from Bayern Munich is probably the guy I think who should have won it. I'm bummed out that Lewandowski didn't win it last year because France football, which runs the award, for some reason decided not to give the award due to COVID, which made no sense. And even Messi, when he got the award, said, look, Lewandowski totally deserved this award last year. They should have given it to him. He didn't go so far as to say uh, Lewandowski deserved the award this time. But (laughs) um, it it is what it is. It's an award. And my feeling about the Ballon d'Or is that it's gotten much more like the ESPYs in recent years. And the ESPYs are not serious awards, right? right? And and nobody gets bent out of shape (laughs) (laughs) who gets an ESPY award (laughs) or doesn't or whatever. I'm at that point with this award. And I do think there's a case to be made that another outfit, another media organization maybe, could do an award that would compete with the Ballon d'Or and they could advertise it as like, we'll give it to who deserves
2: it. Well, I, I do think there's a case to be made for Messi, right? It's not, it's not that bad sure. of an offense. Uh, but I, I do think that The Ballon d'Or certainly means a lot to the players because we know that Neymar moved to PSG, at least in part, to try and win this award. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo was in the press trying to talk down uh, the runner of the Ballon d'Or's comments that he wants to have one more than Messi, essentially. Uh, And so it means a lot to the players. So I think... And I think... When you look at the end of a career, you go, how many Ballon d'Or? Like, it's one feature of the resume, right? The CV at the end of it, how many Champions Leagues, how many league titles, and if you're in this conversation, how many Ballon d'Or? So I do think it matters. Um, I personally agree with the camp that it should have been Lewandowski, and I think the reason why it really upsets me is because you're basically punishing him for getting hurt in the quarterfinals of the Champions League. I think Bayern Munich have as good a chance as anybody – to win that competition if not for robert lewandowski getting hurt and you're also sure. over prioritizing the the international game to the club game there's a narrative that Lionel messi finally delivers his national team title to argentina and so that's a huge that that is the reason why he wins because yeah he had a good season with barcelona but barcelona weren't any good they got hammered out of the champions league they finished in third they were not a good team last year. And so if you base it on club form, you would not give it to Lionel Messi. But because he finally delivers that title, it's kind of almost done on a narrative basis. Now, we are holding Lionel Messi to a ridiculous standard, which is, a eh, you know, the 38 goals he scored for Barcelona this season and the six he scored for Argentina. I mean, in the context of his career, it's probably like his ninth best season. But that's because he has such a ridiculously high bar for what he can deliver. I just, you know, I I still do take it somewhat seriously and I was a little peeved that it wasn't Lewandowski because he deserves at least one over these last two years and I think the only reason why he didn't is because you're not really doing much with Poland at the Euros and he got hurt during the Champions League and that's pretty unfair. You know what? That's a totally fair viewpoint, you know? Um, I
0: personally don't mind valuing international competition and and so I look at what Argentina achieved to win the Copa America this year for the first time since 1993, which goes against, I don't know if you saw the clip of like Roy Hodgson and uh, Keyes and Gray on, I think it was BN saying like, well, you know, Argentina and Brazil win the Copa America, just the two of them every, you know, every couple of years. And like, no, actually it's been- It's been she- she- Chile's award actually. <laughs> exactly, you know? And so it was just one of those cases where like, English commentators yeah. don't even know what they're talking about, as is often the case. Um, and at the same time, I, like, I, I do think the Copa America should be valued. I think they've had the tournament too many times in recent years, and I really do hope they stick to the once every four year situation. That's so much up in the air right now until we get an answer on whether this World Cup every two years is going to happen or not.
2: Do you see the but, polling that got done by that on, on that, by uh, morning uh, consult? I did. Should, why don't you America, share that with our disappointed listeners? <laughs> <right wall. laughs> yeah, what was so basically, it? it was like they, 60, 61-15 in favor of a biennial work World Cup here in the U.S., and then in the in the major European countries it was very much against.
0: Yeah. So they did. They did a semi-scientific survey, which I guess they said had a margin of error of like five percent at most, um, of hundreds of identified soccer fans in different countries, and. The U.S. was second highest behind like India in terms of wanting the World Cup to be every two years. Yeah. Um, The European countries, as you mentioned, were at the bottom, Um, though interestingly, so-called soccer countries, Brazil and Argentina, were pretty close to the U.S. in terms of wanting the World Cup every two years, which... I, I find it interesting. Uh, and so, like, US fans are going to get the typical brunt of jokes from mm-hmm. England and Europe and whatever, uh, you know, about Americans. But I was a little surprised that the numbers were that high for the US.
2: Yeah. I mean, it, unfortunately, I think the same with Brazil and Argentina. You just don't get the same satisfaction out of the club game in your backyard right. seeing the best players, right? Like, yes, we are all somewhat connected to the European game because it's so good. the Champions League is so good, the Premier League, any of the top five leagues are so good to watch. Um, but it's not you don't really feel that connection to it because it's not happening with your teams And so your team playing at high level competition is still the best part of sports. And so I, I do I, I get it from the Brazil and Argentina standpoint. All of our best players don't play here. And so I don't feel a connection to them in the same way as I do when they're playing in an Argentina or in a Brazil shirt.
0: Yeah. The only addition I would make to all of this discussion is I'm actually participating this year. I was asked to participate in the Guardians Best 100 Players Ooh. in the World survey. So, from, from,
2: what I've heard, from what I've heard, you have to submit your top 40, right? That's how that works? So, I, Yeah.
0: So I'm being yeah. asked to submit my top 40 players hmm. uh, in the world. And I was asked to do the men's, not the women's. So I'm just doing the men's. Should we do,
2: should we do a reveal um, on the podcast? Your
0: your top uh, forty ballot? You know what typically happens in these Guardian things is people are really angry with the results. <laughs> <laughs> I think people just like to be angry, you know? Yeah. I, I think I, I think it is very hard probably to design a voting system that is that honors the voters being from different parts of the world and gets the results that most people would say are like, yes. And so then it becomes, how do you design a system that works that way? One thing I do know is that the FIFA best Awards, as they're called now, which come out later in the year and are different from the Ballon d'Or, are not the way to get a good result because it follows the old FIFA thing of the voters are national team coaches from around the world Captains of national teams from around the world and one media person in each country around the world and they actually publicize who votes for who and it's really embarrassing who ends up voting for whom but though it's funny sometimes when you have players like Ronaldo and you see who they vote for and you're like this is ridiculous like he himself knows that his choices are not accurate it's all gaming the system um, which is ridiculous but um Anyway, Chris, we got a fun weekend ahead of MLS playoffs. Um, looking forward to those matchups. Really appreciate Pablo Masteroni coming on the show and appreciate you coming on as well. Thanks, Graham. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Pablo Mastroeni as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my new newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style features and on-location stories for every U.S. Men's World Cup qualifier. Sign up there and get my posts in your inbox the second they go out. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your support with that. I'll see you next time.